Turn with me again to uh, chapter 12 of John's Gospel. John chapter 12, this morning we'll look at verses 27 to 30. John 12. It seems that after every war that our nation has fought, there's been a time of a lot of war stories being told. Many of those coming out in books and in movies for the entertainment of the public. I've never fought in a war, but I was in the military for enough years to know a lot of people who've been to war. I've noticed a pattern. It seems that those who really saw combat, those who saw the most brutal warfare, never talk about it. The ones who tell war stories are the ones who are kind of out on the side somewhere, heard things secondhand. Something about those who really fought with their life on the line that is just too close to home, too brutal to talk about much. In a similar way these days in Christian circles, there's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare. There's songs sung with gusto, the battle belongs to the Lord, and that's true. There are novels which fascinate our imagination, and they're probably good. There's some theology around, some good, some bad, that bolster up our understanding of angels and demons and things of such kinds. Spiritual warfare. But like our glorification of other warfare, I suspect that the real stuff of spiritual warfare doesn't get a lot of attention. That's what I want us to consider this morning, though you won't see that immediately when we read the text. I want us to talk about the spiritual warfare, not, not, not that, that some glorious fantasy world of warfare, but that agonizing life threatening hand-to-hand combat of the soul, which is so brutal that we probably hardly ever even talk about it to one another. That's what's going on with Jesus in these verses. Let me read. John 12, 27. Jesus is speaking. He says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. There are two truths I want us to derive from this uh, passage, and we'll spend most of our time in verses 27 and 28. Two truths. The first is this. Jesus understands your trouble. Jesus understands your trouble. If you've ever tried to help hurting people, you've probably learned that one of the most difficult obstacles that you will face is the frequently heard response, but you just don't know what it's like. You can say that because you've never had to live with this. 
And I've heard that many times, and often I have to admit, yes, you're right. I don't know. I haven't been there. I haven't walked through your trouble. For some people, the fact that you or I have not been where they are is reason enough to just reject any counsel, reject any help, reject any comfort. You just don't know. But in our text, we learn that though we may not have been there, Jesus has been there. He understands your trouble. Think for a moment the kinds of things that cause us the greatest trouble, the greatest heartache. Not just physical things, money problems, uh, physical pain, not, not just that. But when we face things that seem unbearable, the heartache, the grief, the loss, the disappointment, and there's no way out. Or when our heart longs for something so intensely that we would give anything we own to have it happen, and God simply says, no. No. Or when, on the other hand, we do not want something so bad that we would do anything to change it. And it won't change. short those times when the inevitable road ahead the path that God seems to be staking out for us is exactly the opposite of what I want to do or not do when it is flies in the face of every desire of my heart then my soul cries out please no path doesn't change. It is in those moments when some well-meaning friend says, don't worry, it'll all work out. It's not so bad that we are often repulsed and say, you don't understand, it isn't working out. It's not all right. Here in John 12, we come to see that Jesus does understand. He has been there himself. I'm talking about the simple little phrase in verse 27, where Jesus says, the beginning of our text, now my heart is troubled. That statement might not mean to us much to us if we just read through it out of its context anywhere but here in this context we can see that what Jesus is thinking about that what is troubling him is the 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 looming reality of the cross that's coming we've just been talking about that the hour has come now my heart is troubled now John does not record Jesus experience in the garden of Gethsemane like of Gethsemane like the other gospel writers do, but it's clear that his troubled heart here is the same kind of trouble that we read about in Gethsemane. It's part of the same struggle. Interesting to put together all of the various statements of Jesus' inner struggles. The great theologian B.B. Warfield, who lived earlier in this century, did a study on the emotional life of our Lord, and 
he expanded some of those words that Jesus uses or the gospel writers use to describe his heart, his state of mind in the midst of this trouble. For example, Luke's word agonia, from which we get agony, means consternation or appalled reluctance. No! Matthew's expression, trouble, suggests a loathing aversion, perhaps mixed with despondency. Jesus' own statement that he was overwhelmed with sorrow expresses a sorrow, perhaps we would better say, says Warfield, a mental pain, a distress, which hems him in on every side from which there's no escape. Mark uses another word, deeply distressed or horror struck. A term which more narrowly defines the distress as consternation, if not exactly dread, yet alarmed dismay. John Stott comments, put together these expressive words indicate that Jesus was feeling an acute emotional pain causing profuse sweat as he looked with apprehension and almost terror at his future ordeal. Indeed, Jesus' statement in verse 27 is almost a colossal understatement of what's really going on when he says simply, now my heart is troubled. So what troubled Jesus so much? Throughout the ages, great men and women have faced death with courage, without fear. Think of Socrates. He calmly faced death, talking with his followers. Is Jesus weaker than that? Indeed, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples, Fear not! He had instructed them that when they were insulted or persecuted or slandered, they were to rejoice, be glad. Did Jesus not practice what he preached? In fact, throughout the ages, thousands of his followers have faced martyrdom. They've been burned at the stake. They've been skinned alive. They've been fed to animals. And they've rejoiced and faced death with calm and joy and peace. Were they inspired to such great commitment by Jesus' reluctance and agony in the face of death? Oh no, something more must be going on here. There must be something more that Jesus sees on the horizon than just the trauma of physical crucifixion or the emotional pain of being betrayed or losing his friends. Or being alone. There must be something more that causes Jesus such an agony of soul. Well, he gives us some indication of that in the account about the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What cup? What's he talking about there? Well, he's picking up imagery that came from the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even the Psalms. Some places speak of this cup which Jesus drinks to the dregs. And it is always the staggering 
cup of the wine of God's wrath. It's, 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 a, it's a potion that God gives to his enemies and forces them to drink figuratively that causes them to stagger until they're incoherent. God turns his back on them, judges them. It's the wrath of God. That's what Jesus sees coming. He sees the pain of his being identified with our sin on the cross. He sees that coming with all of its staggering implications. When Jesus is identified with our sin and hung on a cross, it means the defilement of his perfect holiness. You watch the news, there probably is nothing as repulsive as to see a report of some innocent young girl being violated by some brutally wicked rapist. We're repulsed. But I tell you that that violation of her purity, as heinous as it is, is small compared to the Holy Son of God being defiled holiness violated. Can't compare. As he looks at the cross, he sees that his death as our sin bearer is going to mean separation, alienation, a break in the perfect fellowship that he has enjoyed from eternity with his father. hearts go out to Bill Cosby this week as his son he says was my hero shot senselessly murdered but I tell you this morning that sense of separation and loss that he feels that terrible terrible separation does not begin to approach the gulf that came between the son and the father when he hung on the cross and cried my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus sees coming. Worse yet, the cross will mean not just enduring separation from the Father, but enduring the Father's anger, his wrath, his holy wrath, his hatred against sin, the bitter cup of his wrath. How can Jesus look at all of that impending doom and say anything less than my heart is troubled. This morning I don't know what your trouble is. I don't know what the agony of your soul is. I don't know what hopelessly impossible options you face. You could easily say to me you don't understand and you probably would be right. But today I can guarantee that whatever trouble, whatever agony of soul, whatever torment in your heart, whatever frustration, whatever impossible situation, whatever sense of, uh, of repulsion at what is coming, whatever it is, it's peanuts compared to what Jesus faced as he saw the cross looming before him. I don't say that to say your trouble is nothing. I say that to impress upon you that Jesus does know your trouble. 
He has been there and beyond. In Hebrews 4, the Lord reminds us what kind of high priest Jesus has become for us because of walking this road. There we read, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows your trouble. Talk to him about it. So what did Jesus do as he faced this trouble? What strategy does he commend to us for our time of trouble? That's what the second truth of this passage is about. The second truth is this, that Jesus gained victory in the midst of this trouble. Jesus gained victory by surrendering himself to defeat. Jesus gained victory by surrendering to defeat. You may not remember, but a few years back, ABC's Wide World of Sports, I don't even know if that program's still on, I don't probably get that station. But anyway, ABC's Wide World of Sports had this wonderful lead-in to their program every week and whatever sporting activity it was that they were showing, where the announcers talked about the wonderful world of athletic competition and they showed all these wonderful great plays. And then they talked about the thrill of victory, they showed the crowd and the teens rejoicing. <coughs> And the agony of defeat. What you remember is the guy coming off of the ski jump, end over end, tumbling, skis and arms and legs down the ski slope. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And we know that those are two opposite extremes. When you're in some athletic endeavor, you can win or you can lose. You can taste the thrill of victory, victory or you can taste the agony of defeat. It's one or the other. That's what competition is about. That's what drives our sports fanaticism in this land. But in our text, we have one of the most paradoxical but one of the most profound truths of the Christian faith. The principle that victory will be gained by Defeat. That sounds crazy. Victory gained by defeat. Well, we saw this truth last week. There we heard one author call it the life through death principle. He said it's the law of the kingdom. Jesus himself illustrated it up a few verses before in talking about the seed. The seed unless it falls into the ground and dies, can't live and grow a new crop. Life comes by dying. Well, here it is again this week. Same principle, different words. Jesus gained victory by surrendering to defeat. And as you will see, that is his strategy for us. Well, let's go back to where we were, verse 27. Jesus says in verse 27 that his heart is troubled. It's troubled by the agonizing prospect 
of his association with our sin and all the devastating consequences of that that will flow to him on the cross. So how's he going to respond? Well, Jesus faces a dilemma that's described here in verse 27. Let me read it again. My heart is troubled. So here's the dilemma. What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Or shall I say, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Which shall I say? Here's the dilemma. Jesus has two paths before him. In the face of the agony of his soul, looking at the cross looming, he can say, first of all, he could say, Father, save me from this hour. I want out. Do you think that the father would not hear his son and come to his rescue? You and I can't just walk away from our sin because we deserve the penalty of it. But Jesus had no obligation. He could walk away from our sin. It's not his sin. Do you think that if Jesus called out to the father that he would not deliver him? Indeed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, and Peter, with this macho whatever, pulls his sword out and starts whacking away, what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. Listen to what he says. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? And so as Jesus struggles with the agony of his soul and the cross looming before him, he wonders out loud, what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. Put yourself in his shoes. I shudder to think what I would have said if I stood in Jesus' shoes. As the enemies gathered around me and their mocking got louder and their accusations got louder, Somewhere along the line, I think I probably would have said, who do you think you're dealing with? You want to see some power? Father, send in the air support. Twelve legions of angels with blazing glory would just be fine. Let's decimate this wicked place. Was it not his right to do that? Oh, but what about the Father's plan from all of eternity to save sinners? The plan would be lost because there wouldn't be any sinners left standing if God in his holiness poured out his wrath. Should I say, Father, I want out? Or then there's this other choice that Jesus faces. He he can continue the plan. It's been worked out. The Godhead from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, how it would all work. The plan is that the Son of God who dwells in perfect holiness would become man in order to take man's sinful debt so that in the God-man Jesus, God the Holy Judge can judge sin and be righteous in his judgment, and yet man 
can be acquitted, justified because his sin is paid for, not by himself, for he could never pay, but by the God-man, Jesus. That's the plan. Well, that plan's still open to Jesus. Nothing has changed. Should he just continue to pursue it? But if he does, he has to continue toward the cross. If he keeps on pursuing this, this means he's going to have to undergo that baptism of judgment. It means he's going to have to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath. It means he's going to have to endure the separation from the Father. It means he's going to have to submit himself to the violation of his holiness. In other words, he can only know the victory of God's glorious plan by surrendering himself to the agonizing defeat of dying. What a dilemma. Should he protect himself? Relieve this troubled heart in this agonizing pressure. Stop the prospect of unfathomable anguish. But do so by walking away from the Father's plan. Protect himself? Or does he abandon himself? Die to every human desire for comfort die to every normal urge to protect ourselves. Die even to his right to honor and glory. Will he willingly embrace such defeat at the hands of sinners and for what reason? So that he could accomplish the Father's plan to save the very sinful scoundrels that punish him. With. Protect self, abandon self. Or let there be no question about his response. Verse 27 and 28. It was for this very reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. You see, Jesus understood his situation in light of the whole plan of God. He understood that this trouble that he faced, this agonizing prospect of the cross, that didn't just happen by chance. It didn't just fall on his plate this morning. No, before the world began, this was planned, and God has been moving toward this point all along. His incarnation and birth was for this purpose. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from this. His years of ministry, he had spoken of this. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for men. He had walked every day, every day, according to the Father's will toward this time. And now when the chips are down, it's no time to seek another plan. He said, it's for this hour that I have come. He stands firm in trusting himself to his Father, not because... It's convenient, not because it's comfortable, not because it's easy, for it wasn't, but because it was the Father's will from all eternity, and it was the path to the Father's glory, the glory of our salvation. His answer here is the same thing he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Bottom line. Doesn't that make your heart melt in gratitude? He didn't have to do that. You may not have options in your trouble. He had options. He chose to surrender himself to the agony of of defeat in order to win the victory which God planned for you and me. Charles Wesley put it to song. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of self, of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. It's glory. All, immense, free, for oh my God, it has found me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? Jesus gained God's victory in ours through his defeat. And when Jesus prays that decisive prayer, it's for this very reason I came to this hour, Father, glorify thy name. When Jesus surrenders his option in favor of the Father's will, we read that the heavens thunder as God speaks. Only one of three times in Jesus' ministry that God speaks from heaven. and says, I have glorified it, that is my name, and I will glorify it. Now, a lot's been written about this. Jesus says it was for their benefit, although he had to explain it to the crowd. I bet that voice from heaven got their attention, however. When you think about what's the purpose, what's going on here, I think what happened is this, if you allow me to just kind of colloquialize it just a minute. I think when the Father heard the Son pray, it's for this I've come, for this reason I've come to this hour, Father, yes, glorify your name in me. I think when the Father heard that, that the voice from heaven is like the Father saying, Yes! That's my Son! That's the kind of obedience that will accomplish my plan. That's the kind of righteousness that can stand in my presence. Look at that Son of mine. Is he wonderful? He only seeks to do my will. I'm so pleased. see, Jesus may encounter all kinds of pain. He may encounter the, the, the opposition of his enemies. He may encounter the, the flogging, the cross, all of those things. It all doesn't matter if only this one thing, the Father is pleased. That's his answer. Glorify your name, Father. That's all that matters. Jesus won the thrill of God's victory by surrendering to the agony of self-defeat. Now, before I quit, what I want you to see is that this is what God has called you and me to, too. The same principle. Life comes through dying. The way to glory is the way of the cross. The way of power is the admission of weakness. The thrill of victory is gained by the agony of defeat. 
For you see, your trouble and mine are basically the same as Jesus' trouble. Oh, they don't begin to, uh, to approach the intensity of Jesus. But it's the same kind of thing. When our trouble comes when God sets before us, either by what he tells us in his word that we can or cannot do, or the way he leads us in his providence, he sets before us something that is not what we want. That's repulsive to our desire, to our own self-interest, to our own plan, to our own comfort. And it hurts like crazy. And things aren't working out, and they seem to be getting worse. And we want relief, or we want comfort so bad that we can't stand it anymore and say, Lord, help me. And he says, no. No. And when we stand there, and you may stand there this morning, when we stand there, in our trouble we face the same options Jesus did in a sense. We can say, God, I have had enough. I want out. I quit. I quit. There's probably some way to get out. People continually devise new ways to get out of their troubles, to mask their troubles, to run from their troubles. Maybe devastating to your life, to others, but you could probably get out may cost you your soul. You could get out. I've had it, God. I've done you. But what about God's eternal plan for your life? What about that unintricate scheme that he planned for millions of years of how he was going to use this trouble just like he used the cross to bring glory to himself? You don't see it, but he does. What about that? What about your commitment when you said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll do what you say. I give my allegiance to you. I want to be your disciple. I'll trust you. What, is he just now going to have to understand it was just too tough? He expected too much? Is that what you would choose? That's one option. Or there's that other option to say with Jesus, not my will, Father yours to say I understand that it was for this very reason that I've come to this hour so now glorify yourself in the middle of this trouble of course that means that all these deepest desires of your hearts may have to die forever and it, it will mean continuing down this road toward the cross this road of dying to self until your whole life is spent wasted on God it will mean that you will give away your rights again and again. It means that you will lay aside your preferences again and again. It means that you will have to let others take first place when maybe you deserved it, and again and again and again. It means that you suffer without retaliation again and again. In short, it means that every day you die, just like Jesus did. And that nobody even knows most of the time. You don't even get a pat on the back. Maybe some say, what a wimp. It probably means to take this option, not my will but thine, it probably means that in your whole life you will never attain a lot of the things you dreamed of. 
a lot of the things that other people expected of you, that you will only strive for the Father's approval to please him, that's all. So how will you respond in the time of your trouble? I want out. Father, not my will, but yours. You see, no matter what the particular struggle is, the battle really is the same. It might be a struggle over some habit. It might be a struggle over some relationship. It might be a struggle about your calling. It might, who knows, any kind of struggle. But the battle is really the same. This is the real spiritual warfare, folks. Spiritual warfare is not about commanding angels and demons and all. No, that's not what. Spiritual warfare is not about taking on some wicked people out there and bringing them into submission. No, that's not what it's about. The battle is against ourself. Against all the things I want, that I deserve, the things I have planned, the things I have a right to. The battle is not about being strong enough to impose my will on others. The battle is about me Submitting my own strong will to the Lord. Let me tell you, other enemies might be easy to defeat, but self is one tenacious fighter. This is a bloody battle to the death, folks. This is the hand-to-hand combat in the trenches of spiritual warfare. Is it going to be God's way? Or is it going to be my way? Am I going to do what I please and have a right to do? Or am I going to bow my knee and die in order that he might be glorified? Not a one-time thing. A hundred times a day we face this battle. This morning, in the thick of that battle, I call you to say with Jesus, for this reason I have been brought here. So here in the thick of the battle, not my will but yours, you be glorified, Father. I don't know what that means for you. I know what it means for me. I'm a little reluctant to talk about the hardest, deepest battles of my mind because I know that even if I tell you about the great victory of yesterday, this afternoon, it may be a bloody war again. I remember as a young lad, probably 10 years old, going to a Christian camp all week and the last night of the camp had a big bonfire. Kids got up and talked about what the Lord had taught them that week. Some of them making some kind of public commitments to the Lord. Some of you don't believe in kids doing that kind of thing, but let me tell you, it's mean, it was meaningful to me at about age 9 or 10. So I went up and I picked up a stick and I threw it into the fire like others had done and with some kind of word said, Tonight I would say, Lord, take my life like this little stick and use it up to burn brightly for you to do your will. And I meant every word of it. 
But as you would expect, and as I knew even then, I didn't begin to understand what that was going to mean. 30 or 40 years later, when you're out trying to serve the Lord, and suddenly you realize, this is eating my life up. This is costing me things that I don't know if I'm willing to give. I'm never going to have the time to do some things I really thought I ought to do that I probably could do. Begin to see that the cost is more awesome than you ever dreamed. And in those times I have stood, as I'm sure you've stood, I've stood at the same crossroads where you have to say, do I say, Lord, enough already. I've had it, Lord. I'm tired of this. I want out. Or do you say, now I see that it was for this moment that you cut me into firewood way back then and aged me and hardened the sap and split me into size so that you could throw me into this fire and I could burn until there's nothing left but ashes. Holy ashes. And those kinds of struggles the only way to get through that is to understand God from eternity past has brought me to this place and where I stand though it's confusing and it's painful and it's frustrating and it's agonizing and I do not understand what's happening for this reason he has brought me to this place this is the fire this is the time, this is when it's burning, and this is when it's painful, but for this reason he has brought me to the world. Father, glorify yourself here, not my will, yours. Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus said, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I was brought to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This morning, understand that Jesus knows about your troubles. He's been there. He's walked there. But Jesus would have you to know from his own experience and his word to us this morning that you will gain the victory only by surrendering to the defeat of dying to yourself. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father. This makes good preaching, but hard living, Lord. Lord, I know how you've had to teach me this lesson so many times. I'm reluctant to even share my heart with your people because I know that I probably will have to learn it again tomorrow. Oh, Father, we meant it when we said we wanted to be your disciples. We 
we ask you to take our sin away, make us your children, and we gave allegiance to you and began to call you Lord. Lord, we meant that as best we knew. Now as we learn day by day what the whole cost will be, Lord, may we not shrink back. Give us faith. Oh Lord, give us perseverance to continually bow our knees, our will, our desire to yours. We ask for your help, Father, not to be delivered from trouble but to be delivered from unfaithfulness. And we thank you that in the hour of your greatest struggle, Lord Jesus, that by the strength of the, your spirit, you pleased your Father and showed us how to live.